Yeah. <laughs> it can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace at least and a better spot to settle. My brother said the Americans haven't got it. Hey everybody, welcome to the show Community Spread. I'm your host Kevin Lundell. On the pod today we have Ogden City Councilman Luis Lopez. And I've just got to meet Luis Lopez a few weeks ago. And he's been taking me to all of the authentic Mexican restaurants here in Ogden and really kind of for the first time introducing me to a culture that's a huge part of Ogden in a community that I've lived in my whole entire life. And it's been pretty incredible to get to know him. He has a story that you would not believe if you didn't read it in the New York Times. And so we are going to uh, put that reference in the show notes. It's a story about his family and their journey from Mexico uh, to the United States and a lot, lot more. But you're going to get to hear it directly from him. And it's really one of the first times he's really shared the bulk of this story in this kind of setting. So I'm really looking forward to you hearing this from him. So now just a little bit more about Luis. Luis immigrated to the United States at the age of 19 and became a U.S. citizen in 2008. He graduated from Weber State University with a bachelor's degree in teaching and went on to earn a master's degree from the University of Utah in education, leadership, and policy. Luis has worked in education for 19 years. 10 of those years were with the Ogden School District as a youth mentor and community programs coordinator. He currently serves as the director of the Community Education Center at Weber State University, where he oversees outreach efforts for the underserved populations. Luis is just an incredible human with a really amazing story, and it's so amazing that we could not cover it in just one part. So the first part you're going to get to hear today is Luis's experience and his journey uh, as he and his family immigrated from Mexico to the United States. And this part two, which you will hear next week, is going to be his current story. What is really driving him now and what he's doing in our community as a city councilman and as a leader in our community. So I look forward to you hearing this episode as well as hearing next week's episode, uh, both on Luis's incredible journey. But before we get to Luis, I just wanted to share with you a little bit about what I've been thinking about or what I've been learning about. I've been reflecting a lot on this podcast. We are 35 episodes in, and it's been an incredible journey. I think a lot about back to the time when we started this, and we were in the summer of the Black Lives Matter protests that center around police violence that came as a result of George Floyd's death and years and years of police violence against people of color. And a year later, we are in the middle of that trial, the trial of Derek Chauvin, who killed George Floyd. And it's hard. It's hard because I know that there was a lot of energy directed at that time. And there was so much conversation. The NBA players had Black Lives Matter on the floor. They had uh, different sayings on the back of their jerseys. There was protests happening. There was energy on social media pushing towards a common goal. And now there's less of that. And there's a trial happening. And many of our friends who are people of color are reliving that summer and those experiences. And without the same sort of support from their allies. I read this post from Rachel Alder today, who was one of our uh, guests on the podcast a while back. She said, all over again, because we have to. How are we here again? Please don't stop the fight just because the issue no, no longer trending. Black individuals and people of color don't get to stop the fight because That is not a luxury we have. We can't keep up this fight alone. So please join us. We want, we continue the pursuit for equality, for equity, she says, not because we want it, but because we are literally dying without it. No more names. And this is in response to the protests and another police killing in the neighborhood of George Floyd uh, by Dante Wright. And so I want us to reflect 
on those episodes and on what got this podcast started and reach out to a person of color in your life and um, see how they're doing and do something to be a better ally. So with that, our conversation with Luis Lopez. Look how far we don't came, we made it to this land of surprise. Though the prophecy says we all been to a brass. Spread the word, let it be known the heaven set us around. Hey everybody, today on the podcast we have Councilman Luis Lopez. Councilman Lopez, how are you doing? Hey Kevin, I'm doing really well. I'm I'm just as happy as can be uh, uh, here on your podcast and ready to have some great time with you. Well, I tell you what, you have been a guest that I've kind of wanted to get on for a while because, uh, you know, you are a councilman here. Uh, how many how many years have you been serving as uh, in the Ogden City Council? Five years. Five years in the Ogden City Council. You're a member of the Latinx community, a first-generation immigrant, and so you have a really important voice that I've wanted to hear from for a while. So I'm pretty excited to have you on. Well, I, you know, I, this is what I really enjoy doing, Kevin. I enjoy, I really enjoy uh, getting a chance to connect with people and with the community. And uh, to me, this is the fun part of my of my work. So thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Yeah, I'm just, thanks for coming. And, you know, I've wanted to have you come on, but then I got the opportunity to sit down for lunch and you told me this incredible story um, about your background and some of the things your family has been through. And I mean, you probably saw it all over my face as my head was exploding, as you were telling me this incredible story. And I was like, whoa, uh, we need to have Luis on to hear this story <laughs> and to have so that the people of Ogden can know uh, about what makes Luis tick and his uh, life experience and what leads him to want to be in government and want to um, fight for some for justice and the different things that you fight for on the Ogden City Council. So Luis, Councilman Lopez, <laughs> take me back to 1995. Your, your family lives in Guadalajara, Mexico. Is that correct? And your dad is the chief of police at the time. And he has just taken down a fearsome kingpin in the Mexican cartel, drug cartel. Tell me what is, is going on in your family at that time and what you're experiencing as your dad has, has just done this really big thing that uh, is a huge deal, both for uh, in, the, in the Mexican government and the United States government, something that was, was really a big thing going on at that time. Well, Kevin, look, um, my dad actually kept my family as, as insulated as possible from his work. So, you know, we, you know, he didn't share all those things with us. And, and, uh, you know, we, I remember that I got to uh, see his work uh, closely and, but details about big things like the one that you just described, uh, it's not something that he talked to us about. In fact, it was the opposite. He tried to insulate us because that was the base, that was the way to keep us safe. Uh, that was the way to protect us. It was by by not sharing anything with us. So I I I remember his his work in general, um, which was obviously very very interesting, very intriguing, um, very dangerous also. And uh, my you know my my family, we all had bodyguards with us all the time my father had uh maybe five bodyguards that were with him 24 7 and you know i had one that was with me all day my brother had another one my mom how, had old, another how one. old are you at this time well i was i was 17 in 1995 because i came to the united states in 1997 when i was 19 so i was 17 
And, and so, so, you know, I, I just, I remember, I remember again, just generally speaking, I remember that, you know, we, we didn't get to see my dad a lot because he was always uh, doing his work. He was traveling a lot. He was on uh, important operations, uh, uh, police operations. Uh, and he worked closely with uh, the military as well. And so sometimes they would do operations that would last weeks. And so we didn't see our dad a whole lot uh, uh, during during that time. And and so, uh, you know, but uh, I have so I have some really interesting, very memorable uh, 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 stories. And then I have some scary times and you know and 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 difficult memories uh but uh, that's that's kind of what ha- what was happening around that time what is it like i mean this is dangerous work that your dad is doing at the time he has five bodyguards your family has body bodyguards was it uh being a 17 year old teenager going to school do it what is that, is it a scary time for you? Is it something you just, uh, you know, your dad's insulated you from it and you got a bodyguard on your side, but you don't think about it a lot. What's, what's that like? You know, Kevin, it wasn't scary at the time. It was scarier later. Um, at the time it wasn't scary because you know that when you're young, what's the same, they say you think that you're bulletproof or something like that. Yeah. And so at that time it was fun for me. Huh? Uh, and, and for Your dad's my, kind of a big deal. You're like, yeah, I got a bodyguard. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we just got to do, and, and again, you know, this is just in 1995, but if you, if you go backwards in my life more, there were, you know, there were times in my life when it wasn't that cool and we experienced some economic difficulties and, you know, I, I had to work at a, in, in Mexico, uh, people that that uh, bag that put your groceries in your bags at the grocery stores. Back in the day when I lived in Mexico, they they called those kids. It was it was it was kids that did that work. So mm-hmm. children or kids ages anywhere from five to six years old what? to about maybe 15, 16 years old. And they didn't get paid. They got paid tips. And they called them cerillos. A cerillo, it's a match. And so the biggest grocery store in Mexico, like the Smiths of Utah uh, or the Walmart, uh, it was called Gigante. And the work, the kids that backed the groceries wore a red apron. And that's why they call them cerillos, because they look like a match. And so, you know, one year I had to work uh, doing bagging groceries to help buy my family's uh, Christmas dinner because we didn't have any money. So it wasn't always that fun. At that time, it was a it was a good time for my dad. Financially speaking, he was doing fine. And so um, so. So yeah, we just, you know, I, I was young and, and I was kind of doing my thing and my my dad was working, doing what he had to do. And my brother was helping my dad more uh, in, in the work that my dad was doing. And uh, my, my, my father had uh, uh, around that time, maybe 2000, you know, I said 2017, maybe around two, 2018, closer to the time when we came to the U.S., my dad uh, started a security company and my brother was, was helping my dad run that company and they had a lot of employees. 97, 98. Is that what you're talking about? And about 90, 97, 96, 97, because we came to the U S in 97. So, so I was, I, the other part of my life, Kevin, that someday you'll hear about is that I was, I was what people call trouble youth. That's what I was growing up. I got in trouble a lot. <laughs> so, so all of the, a lot of the story that we're going to kind of cover here is actually, it was covered by the New York times in 2013. Yes. Right. And, and so you got a lot of people, we'll, we'll put a link on, on the show notes to this, 
but uh, it mentions in there that uh, Luis, you speaking of being troubled, you you were must have been struggling. Uh, you in you it mentions that you failed the eighth grade three times. Yes. <laughs> tell yeah. tell us about that. Tell us about what was going on with going on with you. Well, you know, uh, it's a very very long story, but in in a in a summary, what was happening is that. My dad was always busy working, and my mom was always busy uh, being a, a stay-at-home mom uh, and wife. And uh, my brother and I, you know, were, you know, a lot of times just, you know, we spent a lot of time, a lot of time on the streets and just getting in trouble. You know, yeah. and 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 so I actually got to experience, you know, a lot of you know drinking when I was very young, uh, and uh, you know, and 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 got in trouble that way, not with the law, just in trouble myself because because I would drink too much, and uh, you know, very young. Like I started drinking when I was thirteen years old, mm. you know, and and so it was tough that way, and, and so uh, so. You know, as far as failing those 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 years in in middle school, uh, you know, I just I didn't have the home the family structure uh, needed for me to to be focused in school. Um, you know, my mom was very loving, a very loving mom, and so was my dad. But my dad was probably more strict than than loving. But because he didn't get to spend a lot of time with us, his his way to his way of raising us was by just uh strict rules and and kind of tough love you know uh so that we didn't get in trouble but we didn't have a lot of the foundational uh support from parents uh and things like that so yeah a difficult difficult childhood that kind of that kind of upbringing um i'm sure it shapes you a lot of ways today and in wanting to help kids and get get people on the right track. I can see that in the work that you do for sure. Yes, Kevin, exactly. You know, I, I, I work in education. I used to work in, in Ogden in a middle school, in a middle school. I worked there for 10 years and, and now I've been working at Weaver state for close to 10 years. And, uh, I miss working with kids and I can really relate to the kids and I can relate to yeah, just about, sure. especially in inner city schools, I can relate to, to almost all the problems that kids are experiencing, experiencing okay. in, in difficult schools. I can, I can relate to mental health problems, to substance abuse problems, to problems at home, to fighting, to rebelling, to, I mean, I, 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 I kind of, I kind of lived it all. And, and, and yeah, it's, that's why, that's why I do what I do. You're right. Well, I kind of want to set the stage as, as we uh, get to the part of the story where you guys uh, end up moving uh, to the United States. And um, I think it's really important that we understand like a little bit about what's going on um, with American politics at the same time as your dad is um, working in between 95 and 97 um, fighting the, w against the drug cartel. So um, uh, the Clinton administration had just signed the, the NAFTA agreement, uh, North American Free Trade Agreement, so that they became... Uh, more free trading partners with Mexico, really important trade relationship there. Um, and, and in doing so, they had a $50 billion bailout um, of, the, of the Mexican economy at the time. And so uh, President Clinton really wants, uh, as part of that relationship, a crackdown on the drug cartel. And so, uh, you, you know, your, your dad and is, starts to work closely with uh, a general. His name is General Gutierrez. Is that right? Uh-huh. And so your, your dad starts to work closely with this general. And um, he's also, at the same time, he has is, is working with the DEA, right? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So he has, is kind of work. He's, he's got relationships with the DEA. He's informants with the DEA. He's uh, working with General Gutierrez. And the general actually uh, gets promoted to be a part of, like, the narcotics staff in the military and asks your dad to come on as the chief of staff. Is that correct? Yes. And your dad ends up moving to Mexico City. Do, do you remember that time? Did your family move to what, what happened with you? Oh, yeah. Time? No, I remember. We didn't move with my dad. 
we didn't move my dad. So the general became the director of uh, an office or a department in Mexico, which it would be the equivalent of the DEA in the United States. Okay, yeah. Um, and so that's, that's, that was his role at the, at the national level. So we didn't move. Uh, we stayed and my, my dad traveled to Mexico City. He would, he would travel back and forth. And, and so I remember the time, you know, I remember the time, uh, uh, Kevin, in fact, uh, before, before what happened happened, which is what we're leading up to again, those were actually, they were interesting times. They were very interesting times because, because my father had a very high profile job, uh, and, and, um, you know, and he worked for this very, very powerful uh, general. Uh, I I always felt that the general was in a position to potentially become uh, the sec uh, the Secretary of Defense in wow. Mexico. I think I think that's how high he was, how high up he was. Well, I ranks. mean, it makes sense, right? As as your dad and the general kind of worked to take down um, this one important guy. Um, in in the cartel and and the U.S. government's like touting how big a deal that was and and he he's working his way in with U.S. government so he's growing and building as he's made these high profile arrests so yeah it makes sense that he would be up yeah up the ladder in yeah. in in promotions there in the Mexican government yeah absolutely it does make sense and and so. Um, so I, I remember the times and time, the times were just uh, normal. I mean, we we got to live our lives uh, again, and you know, my dad was doing his thing, and uh, uh, you know, we uh, we we wouldn't see him much, uh, and there wasn't really a whole lot to that period of time, other than other than what was happening was really interesting. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I, uh, let's see one time. So that didn't happen when I, when my, when the general went to Mexico city and my dad went with him, this happened when the general was still in Guadalajara. But one time my dad invited me because the media, uh, the, the military, uh, were, yeah, the military coordinated with the media and they were going to do a, a story uh, for TV to do a flight recognition to uh, basically highlight uh, uh, some uh, uh, marijuana fields that the military have found and were going to destroy so my dad called me and 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 and, and he told me to go and see him and and we got in helicopters and we went and flew around these fields in the mountains. And then we landed on the mountains where these plantations were and they, they were burning them. And there were a lot of uh, reporters. There were like, like 20 or more reporters. And I, I actually have a picture of that. Really? Uh, I do. I have a picture of that. It's one of my, one of the few pictures that we were able to save. And I'm uh, there. I'm probably, I'm probably, yeah, again, like 17, maybe 18. You know, and it was fun because probably a surreal uh, experience as you're like, you know, you go very surreal, yeah. very surreal. Yeah, very surreal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and so in Mexico, uh, Kevin, the 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 culture of weapons is and guns is very different from the United States. Right. So, you know, a lot of people own guns. We know that the bad guys obviously have guns and weapons, especially the drug cartels. They have you know, very, very heavy advanced uh, uh, guns and, and, and rifles and et cetera. But the average citizen in Mexico is not supposed to, it's not supposed to own weapons and the culture is not like here. And, and so uh, most people, most average citizens in Mexico don't get to handle guns often at all. If people have a gun, maybe they keep it in their home but they don't have a place to really go shoot or anything like that. So, so people that are around guns, it's kind of a big deal. And so we were around guns all the time. And anyway, anyway, it was, it, it was, it, we had some of those fun moments too. 
And then your life changes forever, very dramatically, all in one instant, as uh, the general, uh, General Gutierrez, who your dad is the current chief of staff for, uh, gets accused of um, working with the drug cartel and ends up being arrested. Is that how the, yeah. that story goes? Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. So the general got accused of of colluding with uh, drug uh, traffickers, and when they when the military uh, detains the general, then all his people underneath him go down with him, and the military goes after them as well. So the military goes after everybody that the general works for. And, uh, and so all his team. And so I, I'm pretty sure that they, they, you know, they arrested a whole bunch of people um, and, and detained them and probably interrogated them and probably, probably uh, tortured some of them. I mean, this is, this was common practice in Mexico back in the day. You know, the military and the police, uh, corrupted police and corrupt military would would do this in a heartbeat uh, to detainees. Uh, uh, it's 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 just uh, common common knowledge that that's how they operated. So that's what happened. Yeah, they they. So it's they, the military itself um, taking one of its generals and uh, as the government accuses that military, that general of being corrupt and say and and arresting him and everybody under him basically you know there's a point in this and and so you're there's a point in this article as um they're talking about your dad and they're talking with a dea agent who was working with your dad at the time and um it, it talks about how he had several sources that worked closely with your dad and and this agent said uh, speaking of directly of this time as he was trying to, he was trying to find your dad and, and, but he had these other sources and he said, my sources were dropping like flies. One day I'd be talking to a guy and the next day he'd be dead. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this, and this is an incredibly dangerous time for your dad and he, he runs, right? He's like, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. I know what's coming. Uh, he, he actually goes as far as to get, plastic surgery and loses 70 pounds to change his image so that he can hopefully try to go undetected at this time. Yeah. What's going on with you and your family as this is starting to, starting to happen, starting to go down? Well, what happened is that we, we got a phone, call, a phone call from my dad and he said, leave the house uh, because something happened. And you know we were we were we were a little bit used to that because it happens it happened before a couple of times he would call and say leave the house you know and then we knew something was going on where he felt like his life was at risk in danger and he felt that maybe our life could be in danger and he'd say just leave so that time we we did we, we it took us about thirty minutes I don't know thirty forty five minutes to gather everything we could and put it in a in in a car and. We all got in the car and we left, and uh, we we went and stay and tried to stay in a hotel uh, that night, and um, and so we 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 found that we 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 got to a hotel and we thought people were following us. We were very paranoid, and so we left that hotel, went to another one, finally found a hotel, spent the night. And the next day we left again and we went and found uh, help from a relative. And there was an empty apartment, an apartment building. We spent like two or three nights there in an apartment building with uh, no furniture, nothing. And uh, my niece was six days old when this happened. And we were carrying her with us. Wow. Um, six days? And six niece days. Six days old? Six days old. And yeah. you're carrying her with her? with you on we're, the run we're on the run we're on the run and she's with us yes and so then we travel to mexico city we got on an airplane we traveled to mexico city and we we stay there with 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 more relatives and at that time my 
my niece, my six-day-old niece, she had a heart problem. She, she got surgery in Mexico City. Um, and we lived in Mexico City for about maybe about three months. And we hadn't heard from my dad. We didn't know where he was um, uh, until about maybe after a couple months we were in Mexico City. Maybe then were we you, heard. Were you worried about him, or do you did you know if he was like? So you know, yeah, we were worried, but we we knew that he was alive yeah. because you know we we hadn't heard that otherwise. And uh, you know, my dad was my dad was pretty smart. Uh, as far as uh, police work. So we knew that he was going to stay safe. Uh, we had confidence in that. And then uh, about after three months that we were, or a couple months, two months that we were in Mexico City, something like that, then we heard from my uh, a friend of my dad who was his attorney also, and he talked to us and he started telling us that he was in, in he was in touch with my dad and that my dad was so my dad was doing fine and then that's when he started telling us that um the the DEA was asking my dad to if he wanted to come to the United States and so um my dad accepted to do that and you know the the da apparently i mean i don't remember the details because i wasn't there this is this is just kind of the story that i that i heard from my dad and from other people is that they the da said that we had to make our way to the u.s mexican border and so we did we flew over to the mexican border to the u.s border all my family. And then uh, uh, I remember, I, I can remember how the rest of my family walked through the border, but I, I walked through the border with a friend that was with me and there were DEA agents at the border because my passport was expired. Uh, I didn't have time to renew my passport. I couldn't renew my passport. I couldn't go to the Mexican consulate. We were hiding. Right. And 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 my niece and my niece being six days old at that time, she was now two or three months old, and my nephew was two years old. They didn't have passports, so the Department of State, the, U, the United States Department of State, they issue letters to ask uh, immigration and customs enforcement uh, to let my to allow my niece and my nephew to come into the United States with those letters issued by them because they didn't have passports. Oh, yeah. So I remember that when I was walking through the, to, to the board, I remember that I was, I was walking and I was approaching the, the police officer that was there at the border. And I remember that I, I feel like I was getting like a panic attack because I, I, I felt very nervous because I didn't have a passport, a valid passport. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> And I'm just kind of looking at these guys. I'm, I'm not, I'm a terrible liar. I can't lie. <laughs> so I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I going to tell you? And so I'm just kind of getting really nervous. And as soon as, as soon as we almost got there, I saw there was this guy there from the DEA and he showed his badge to these, to the uh, agent, to the police officer that was there. And he said, you know, they're with me and whatever were, we're working on. They were, something. Wait, they were I, waiting for you to, to come across. They were waiting and... for me. That I think the rest of my not knowing that would been scary, like not knowing if they were actually going to meet you there, or like you're just showing up and they're like, "Yeah, somebody yeah, will be I there. Like, yeah, somebody will be there to help you across." You're like, "Okay." I didn't have an itinerary for that day, to say the <laughs> least. <laughs> <laughs> That's that is a crazy experience. Uh, you know, it it's interesting. Um, in the article, it talks about how. Um, at the time of the arrest of, of the general and your dad's on the run, that it seemed like the, the United States government's a little bit skeptical of this arrest. You know, it says in here that um, Clinton administration, they, that they summoned the Mexican diplomats um, demanding to know why their government had not shared its suspicions about General Gutierrez before his trip to the United States. And Congress called on the White House to void Mexico's standing as a reliable ally in the drug war. So it sounds like 
the, you know, the, the United States government is actually a little bit suspicious. They're like, wait, this guy was just here. And you guys say that he's a he's he's in with the cartel. Why why was he here and why weren't you sharing this with us? And so they're they're like they're a little bit skeptical at this time. Um, what what is your 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 dad's story and 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 the general story about what why he was arrested and why they were they were after him? So I I think Kevin that you know really honestly we don't we don't know exactly. Uh, the real reasons why the general was arrested. I don't know that. I don't know that my dad knows that. We we only have, uh, you know, we, we can only speculate. And what I speculate is that, um, you know, he probably got in the way of uh, maybe maybe very important people in the government. He, the, the general probably, uh, you know, uh, find out information that was damaging to the government in Mexico. And, and they had, they had some, they had problems with him. I think the general was known for being a very strong figure, a very strong person, a very, uh, um, you know, um, yeah, kind of like a you know stand. He would stand his ground, and he wouldn't be bossed around easily. I think he had that reputation, and so my my guess is that he probably pissed someone off. He probably was uh, you know probably you know affecting some kind of uh, interest for somebody, and that's what happened. Uh, because I agree with uh, what's in the story with the newspaper. Like, you know, what, like three months later, three months before? I mean, because the general went to D.C. Yeah. when he was appointed. He went to D.C. Yeah. and he, he met with, you know, with the high level officials in D.C. And so in, in Mexico, in Mexico, the scapegoating, the scapegoating uh, phenomena is just rampant. Uh, again, I don't know how it works right now because now I've been here now for 23 years, so I can't claim that I'm a local anymore of Mexico. I'm, I'm a local of Ogden now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and but back in the day, during those government regimes, uh, scapegoating was huge. And basically, you know, they there was a crime committed, and the government would just pick someone they wanted to plant the the crime with and say he did it. So they throw him in jail. They tried to do that to my cousin one time, and my cousin spent time in prison. Really? Uh, absolutely. It was, it was a really big, big deal, important case. So I won't name my cousin. I won't say his name because I don't have permission to do that. And I won't even talk about it. But I just remember because it was a big deal. <clears throat> it was a big deal. And so Something sim. I, I am. A, I'm guessing that something similar might have happened to the general. And so interesting, interesting. And so, and yeah. And so, so your dad, your dad comes to you and your family. You guys come to the United States. He's kind of a, pri a prized uh, informant for the DEA. He's got lots of knowledge, lots of information. Um, I'd imagine. Um, I, I don't know what what you you end up in Utah, and what's what's that life like for those couple of years um, as you first got to Utah. It's hard. It's very, very hard, um, Kevin, because when we left Mexico, um, we, we couldn't bring, uh, we, 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 we couldn't bring almost none of our possessions. Uh, we, we could barely bring anything. Uh, so we left like all our pictures, all our family pictures, we left them behind and we don't have them. We, we lost them. Um, you know, and I was in high school at that time and I was kind of getting ready to graduate from high school. And I, I just, you know, we just disappear from one day to the next. Wow. And, wow. and, and, and so, and so, you know, we show up, uh, here in Utah and, you know, we're just new, we don't speak English. Um, and, uh, we're lucky. We're very fortunate that we, my dad had some savings. So at least we were able to. Uh, buy a house 
on credit, not on cash. <laughs> and and so at least we were able to do that. Uh, but it was hard. It was just really hard. You know, uh, it's it's uh, most people that come from Mexico that are immigrants from Mexico have a story and it's kind of a it's kind of a it's kind of a joke but it's it's serious also it's like real but it doesn't mean that everybody has the same story but i i hear it a lot and the the story goes that everybody that comes from from mexico or latin america has a has a briefcase or a briefcase excuse me has a luggage underneath their bed uh, a made luggage with their clothes because they're counting the days when they can go back to their home country. Uh, my grandma told me that story, you know, so that's how I felt, you know, I, I didn't want to be here, um, you know, and, and, you know, and I would call, you know, well, actually we couldn't even call anybody at that time. That was the other thing. Uh, we, we couldn't, we couldn't talk to anybody, absolutely no one in Mexico. So my, my sister-in-law came with us and she because you're, you're still on the run from the Mexican government. We are. Right? We are. So my sister-in-law came and she couldn't talk to her parents either. So for quite a few months, she couldn't talk to her parents. So we were like, we were supposed to be acting like if we were in some kind of a witness protection program, even though right. we weren't in a witness protection program uh, officially. But that's how we were supposed to act. So for years we couldn't talk to anybody. So it was hard. It was just hard. It was a, it was hard, uh, you know. And and I mean, I don't know how much you want to know about my difficult Please. experiences here in Utah. <laughs> Man, I can't even. I, can't I, even I can really tell imagine, you many. <laughs> I can't even really imagine leaving uh, home, leaving your culture, uh, leaving your language. Uh, and right in your just such formative years, uh, you know, and and what that must have been like uh, as you come here. And it's not only formative years; like you're getting into those teenage years where you have to start figuring out how to make a living, how to make a work on your own. Like, what did you do during that time? Did you start to work? Did you? And how did you do that? So, so in in Mexican culture. At least, at least in Mexico, I, I I think it's probably probably first generation immigrants in the U.S. probably still have a lot of similarities. I don't know what Dan would think, for example, but uh, it, it, the culture is different as far as when you're 18, you're supposed to start kind of just fend for yourself and leave your home and take off the nest, right? It, it, <laughs> and our culture is a lot different. In fact. We're the complete opposite. We we don't want our kids to leave our home, uh, and so I didn't go through that part, but I stayed home for the opposite reasons. I didn't stay home because I was getting paid and cuddled by my parents. I stayed home because I had to support my family. I had to support my yeah. parents <laughs> and, yeah. and my sister and my mom and my and my niece and my nephew. So, so what happened basically, Kevin, is that you know my dad had some savings. And his savings lasted for like two or three years, maybe. My dad was in a very bad emotional state. So he, unfortunately, he made some really bad decisions with his money. So he lost it fast. Uh, he made a few, you know, uh, unfortunate business decisions. The money was gone. And so at that point, my first job here in the United States, I think, was... Uh, well, I had a lot of jobs actually. I, I was working I was working in different places. I, I used to work at Bowman and Camp. And you know, but I, I remember that I there was one year, so this this is a reflection of how difficult it was for my family to adapt uh, to our new way of, of life here in Utah. I think one year I remember I probably had so I have, I think I had like 10 W2s in one, in one year because I, I, I continuously so quit, I would quit jobs because I was very temperamental at that time. I was, I would, I was also going through, I was also going through some emotionally really difficult things. Of course. 
And then culturally, culturally, Kevin, also, it's really difficult to adapt because, uh, you know, I mean, I was, I was, I had to now here work uh, in, in production companies and construction companies. And then, you know, a lot of people were rude and mean and disrespectful to, you know, to employ, to employees and they treat you bad. And I had a really hard time putting up with that. And I just, you know, I, I wouldn't put up with it actually. And that's why I had so many different jobs. It was very, very hard, very hard. I mean, it had to just been a lot you're, you're going through. It was, it was, it was a lot. So yeah. anyway, so I, at like that point, the part I want, I want to start, a, I, I kind of, I'm interested in is, you know, you are something, something happens. Uh, you know, I talked earlier about how the, the, the U S government seems a little bit skeptical initially of this arrest. Um, but at some point, someone in the Clinton administration gets this idea that, um, you know, they're, they're, they are trying to portray this war on drugs that is happening between uh that 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 they are they're they're trying to say we're us the united states is putting pressure on the mexican government to fight back the drug cartel and the, and they start to think oh we can pray if we start praising this arrest oh they, they they found this general he was corrupt and they start praising this arrest that that is shows that they're that, that the mexican government actually is uh, working to fight the cartel and they start to point out the arrest of the general as part of that and so but at the same time the mexican government wants your dad and they want to arrest your dad but your, your dad's working for is an informant for the dea and uh the but the the white house and the dea the white house is now saying uh we don't really want to to uh protect uh, Mr. Lopez anymore. And so at some point the DEA, uh, comes to your dad and says, um, I think, I think what it said in the article was the agent that he works with specifically kind of tipped him off a little bit and was like, Hey, by the way, the U S the U S government's not going to protect you anymore. And in fact, they're coming they're The U S government now is coming for you to extradite you back to Mexico. Yeah. Yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> so politically, politically right now, the, 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 the Clinton administration says, ah, we're going to put this guy on a pedestal. We're going we're to try to get, we're going to ship them back to Mexico. And they're basically using you and your family as, as, as pawns in this political game. And you are caught right in the middle of it. And now not only on the run from the Mexican government, but now your family is on, is on the run from the U.S. government. When does that come to a head um, for you and for your family? So that comes to a head when my family, my, my, my immediate family and my extended family, my mom, my brother, we all traveled to California to go visit my grandma. And uh, that's where my dad uh, was. He was in California at that time. And... Uh, I was at my grandma's house and I went with my uncle, drove off uh, his home and we were going somewhere to a store, I think. And we drove maybe three or three or four blocks, five blocks. And we saw a, a bunch of police cars that pulled over my other uncle. So we were driving through the street. We saw these cars have someone pulled over it. and with handcuffs and it was my uncle and we're like what's going on so well actually i said what's going on for like maybe 10 seconds and then i'm like i know what's going on we we, we both knew my uncle and i both knew something was going on right so we circle around and then went back to the house my grandma's house because my uncle lived in the same house and now there are like a lot of police cars there so they raided my grandma's house looking for my dad so we went this, in this and is the, this is the u.s marshals this is the u.s marshals in US coordination with the with the local police and and so we went in to my grandma's house 
And I remember that I went to the backyard and the U.S. Marshals surrounded the house and they went to the neighbor's house and asked for permission to come inside their home so they could surround the house. And one of the U.S. Marshals, uh, you know, I asked him if they had a warrant. And his response was, he pointed a shotgun at my face and he said, he said, sit down. And I said, okay, I'll sit down. I, I, I speak that language. <laughs> and, and so, you know, then they asked us for permission if they could go in to search a house. And my uncle gave him permission. I wouldn't have given them permission. I would have liked to make their job a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. But my uncle did. They went in. They couldn't find my find my dad. And when they walked out, they they tried to make nice. They tried to make nice with us at that point. And the leading agent was trying to, you know, make nice with me and my brother and telling us that they're just doing their jobs. But before that, actually, before that, they were threatening us. They were threatening all my family and my uncles to get that they were going to get deported if they didn't say where my dad was. They were asking everybody if they were U.S. citizens or if they were residents. And, you know, at that point, I wasn't I wasn't very schooled yet on how to protect ourselves as far as dealing with law enforcement when some of these things sure. happen. So, you know, we're just scared. You know, we're just we're just telling everything they're asking us. So they couldn't find my dad. And, you know, so, after wait, a while, they I want to go back. The, 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 first of all, the size of this operation is probably massive, right? US yeah, there was a helicopter. Like, there was a helicopter flying around. There's a helicopter flying around. Your dad apparently yeah. had like a 20 second head start. He, he, how did he know? Because did you guys, you know what? Like <laughs> I don't think he knew. I don't think he knew, Kevin. I think it was just a coincidence. What? It was just a strike of luck, I think. Mm. My dad left with, with my, I'm going to call him Uncle One and Uncle Two. So, I, I, my dad left with uncle one, my dad left the house and then I took off with uncle two and, uh, 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 15 minutes later. And that's when we found uh, uncle one arrested. So the U S marshal that was taking my grandma's house saw that my dad got in left with uncle one left the house and I, my uncle dropped off my dad somewhere. And after he dropped off my dad somewhere, that's when he got pulled over. So my dad wasn't with him anymore. Oh, whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And these all happened in a matter of, again, yeah, yeah. It was because if my dad would have waited, may, may, I don't know, maybe it wasn't 20 seconds. Maybe it was a few minutes. Uh, but if, if it would have been maybe five minutes, I think the U.S. Marshals would have been there and they would have arrested him and they probably they would have sent him back to Mexico. Yeah. And you guys are at gunpoint being threatened that you're going to be deported. And like, what, what are, what's your, what are you experiencing at that moment? And what, what do you say in, in those moments? Well, they, they told us the U.S. Marshals were telling us that my dad was going to be in a lot of suffering and pain. Uh, that he was going to be, they said, well, well, they weren't threatening us that they were going to do something to, that's not what they were doing. They said that right. if he was on the run, that that's how he was going to be in suffering because he didn't want to be on the run. They said, he's going to be sleeping under bridges. He's going to be on the run. You don't want that for your dad. Tells where he's at, et cetera, et cetera. And we're like, well, no, we don't know. We actually didn't know where he was, where he was. Right. Right. <laughs> so... <laughs> So there wasn't much. I mean, I was just upset. I was angry. I was upset. Um, and uh, again, Kevin, uh, not the first time. Something like that. Yeah, it was the first time something that big happened because, you know, we were used to being in the other side, which was being in the, on the good side, right? We were the good. We were the good guys too. Right. Yeah. We were. We were. My my father was a, a police chief in Mexico, and he was an ally of the United States law enforcement Absolutely. agencies helping. Yeah. And so it just felt that I, I, I was very angry about that. It's like, you know, they're treating us like criminals. Right. And we are, like, we are your here, friends. He was here helping we, you. He was helping your we, agency. Like, absolutely. What? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the, the feelings are just, you know, anger and frustration. You know, I, I don't, I don't think I was scared at that time. Actually, mm -hmm. I was just upset and angry. And, um, 
and you know just they 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 you know they after they threaten us and then they try to scare us and you know after they realized that they weren't going to get anything from us because we didn't know where my dad was then they try to make nice with us and they try to make peace with us and then they left and that was it so you know for the next a long long time uh, uh your dad at least is on the run from two different governments and um but but you actually during this time you you get married, um, you become a U.S. citizen, uh, and and you end up going to college. How, how did that all yeah. play out? So, one thing I didn't mention when I was talking about the previous part that I'll just throw it in there. Uh, so the way that the uh, uh, U.S. Marshals found out that my dad was in California and that we were traveling there is because they. Uh, they tapped our phones. They got court orders to interfere our phones and they were listening to our conversations. And that's how they found out. But now coming back to your question about going to college and all of that here. So um, so I met, uh, my sister was, going, was in high school at that time. So we were in California when that happened. We came back to Utah. We kind of continue our lives. Uh, I was working at that time for another HVAC company. Um, and this time I was working primarily installing fireplaces. I was working for a fireplace company. And my sister was going to school to Ben Lomond High School. And we met her principal, who was an assistant principal at that school at the time. At the time. Uh, and and we became good friends and uh, his name is Kevin and, and and he became my mentor and good friend. We became really good friends. We became family. And so Kevin helped me, connected me to apply for a position. And I ended up getting the job at the school where he, later he went to be a principal, which is Mount Ford Junior High School. And then when I started working at Mount Ford Junior High School, I was a high, uh, I was an at-risk youth coordinator and mentor and uh, case manager. And around that time, I, 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 well, I was already married. And then by marrying my wife, I became a permanent resident. And then at this time, now I qualify for financial aid. And so Kevin helps me make connections with Weber State, and I get a full a full time scholarship at Weber oh, State wow. called TAPT, uh, which is which stands for Teacher Assistant Path to Teaching. And so I'm on a full ride scholarship. I have my family, uh, and I leave HVAC work, uh, go to work for the middle school. Spend seven years, or it took me seven years to get my bachelor's degree. I graduated as a teacher in uh, uh, major in Spanish, minor in ESL. Uh, it took me about seven years. Um, and then I started my master's program at the University of Utah right after that. And so I, I, I graduated with my master's degree in education, leadership, and policy from the University of Utah. And that took me about another two years. And so Kevin left Mount Ford after six years and I stayed for a little longer. And then Kevin left, went to be a principal in other schools. I stayed for a few more years. Then I, I got this job at Weber State that I have now. And, and so, you know, it was, it was another period of, period of my life that was really hard, Kevin, because when I started going to Weber State, I had to enroll in their ESL program or what what we call it at Weber State LEAP. So ESL stands for English as a Second Language. LEAP stands for Learning English for Academic Purposes. So the program helps people that want to enroll in the university for a degree, but people that don't speak English well, they they have to take a test and depending where they score, they have to get into the LEAP program and then they have to build our skill, you know, have to build our skills so that we can take general general courses at the university. So I studied in that 
department, the lead department for about a year. And then I started taking general education classes. I, I scored on the lowest level of math and English. So I started in, they call them now developmental. Uh, they used to call it uh, remediate, remediation classes. Now they call them developmental classes. So I scored in math 950 and English 950. So I did 950, uh, 960, and then I went into the uh, 1010s. Luis, and I so can't I rem- even imagine writing a paper, a college-level paper, in a language that's not my first language. And a language that, how many, I mean, like, at the time, how many years had you lived in the United States before you, when you started going to college? Well, We're let's see, about- I, uh, 97, I, I have probably been here for about maybe five years, maybe. Five years, and you didn't speak, yeah. really speak English before you came here. No, yeah. And now you're trying to so, like write college level papers. So my first, one of my first classes was a history class. I, I tell this story when, I, when I'm talking about this. Um, and basically, Kevin, um, I remember it would take me about 10, 10 or 15 minutes to read one page of my textbook for history. Because what I did was I had to read and I would highlight every word I didn't know as I, as I was reading. And at, at, you're talking about, we didn't have cell phones that we have now at that point. Right. <laughs> and so I have my dictionary. So I would look up every word that I didn't know. And then I write it on the, on the page of the book. And then, so I, so no, I, would, I would stop and understand the word and make, make sense of it. And then I would probably w- w- kind of translating it too, right? Yeah, is that how yeah. it works? Like you're translating it yes, back to yes. Spanish, exactly, and exactly. back to English, and yep. So then I would go back and reread the page now that I knew what the words meant, and then you know that's how I could understand the the content. And so it took me forever, like forever. But you know, I was doing that on purpose. Maybe I could have, maybe I could have read a little bit faster. But I was doing it on purpose because I wanted to continue learning English. Yeah. And so, you know, I was very, I was very uh, determined and I was very, uh, um, I, I, I was, yeah, determined. I was very determined to learn the language. And so I knew what I had to do. Uh, and before I started going to Weber State, you know, I, I would, you know, I, on my own, it was, I, I knew, I knew what I had to do. I had to listen to the radio in English and watch movies and watch TV and carry my dictionaries. I would, I would carry three dictionaries in my backpack, uh, an English only, a Spanish only, and then English Spanish translation dictionary. And I remember I would drive, I would be driving in my car and I'd be listening to the radio. And I remember that I was driving and, I'm, and I, and I hear a word that I don't understand. And I'm like, what that's a cool word i don't know what it means and i, I would pull over and i pull out my note my notepad and i write down the word because i wanted to find it later and, and then i would find it and i'm like i would remember what the conversation was was about and i'm like okay that makes sense now you know and, and so yeah it was it was hard it was tough and and uh but finally you know pulled it off got my my bachelor's from weaver state got my master's from the u Worked at Mountain Fort for 10 years. Uh, and then I've been working at Weaver State for about close to 10 years also from now. Well, Luis, I feel like we just laid some incredible groundwork for the story of Luis and who becomes Councilman Lopez, who has this incredible job working with diversity at Weaver State and the amount of work and the amount of effort that it takes for someone to come uh, under asylum circumstances to then become who you are. So I'm calling an audible and we're going to call this part one. And I want you to come back <laughs> and we're going to do this again. And we're going to do two parts. And the next part is going to be us sh- sharing about um, the things that you're passionate about now and how your life experience now that our listeners have heard it is shaping you uh, to uh, fight for justice, fight for equity, 
in the communities you care most about uh, here on our next episode. How do you think, how do you feel about that? I love it. I, 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 I'm excited and I, and I'm, and I'm grateful to be here and uh, thank you for, again, thank you for inviting me and thank you for what you do and for what you do, Dan, uh, because I know that you do this because you also have a very strong sense of um, serving uh, the community and so I really appreciate and thank you for for what you're doing Community spread is a deep state media production. It's produced by me Kevin Lundell and directed and edited by Dan Martinez <laughs>